No Small Job, the podcast. I am your host, Paul Newen. Thanks for coming back. It's, uh, it's nice to have our regular listeners back again. And to any new people out there, welcome. Um, this is a timeless podcast. If you are interested in listening to any of our previous podcasts, we've got some excellent guests. We've got a librarian, a primary school teacher, a nurse who mostly worked in Egypt. So it's a nice little dive into a whole other culture. Um, feel free to check out our previous podcasts. You can find them on... Uh, our website, nosmalljobspod.com.au. Uh, also make sure that you follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The handles are all the same, no small jobs pod. Um, yeah, and uh, we can find our podcast wherever you find good podcasts, Podcast Addict, iTunes, Spotify, everywhere. Um, so today's guest is David. David is a teacher and an archery YouTuber. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, all right. This conversation is going to be a lot about... I think the thing that interests me most about you is actually how you mix the two careers. But let's... I always like to start chronologically. So, let's... Which came first, the archery or the teaching? Uh, definitely the teaching came first. All right. So, what inspired you to be a teacher? Well, I, I started off as with uh, many uh, Asian families. Uh, I'm a Nguyen too, by the way, so uh, we have a common background. <laughs> yes, and we also, it was hilarious, yeah. my producer, the first question was, are you related? And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, not the first person to ask that, it's okay, but, uh, but you know, a very common occurrence, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, as with many uh, uh, your typical Asian kids, I was pressured by my father to be um, an engineer. <laughs> so, uh, that, this is pretty typical. So, uh, I, I thought a lot for a while and uh, I was okay I, I was good at it but I didn't really enjoy it and there are a few turning points in my schooling where I realized that it wasn't really for me um, I, I just didn't enjoy it and like I, I, I at the time I was in year 12 and I had um, a bunch of uh, science and maths textbooks and on the, on the other desk I had all the history books and I thought you know what I really enjoyed that thing over there why am I doing this thing? And, you know, through a you know, c- certain sequence of events, it kind of clicked to me that I should be doing what I enjoy as a job. So first step was, well, drop the science, drop the history, drop the IT, um, pick up history, and someone randomly mentioned that <laughs> you should be a teacher. And I laughed at first, and I went, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's something I could do. I like school. I like being in school. And... So I went from math, science, and IT to being an English and history teacher. <laughs> I mean, did you ever think you could turn that into something else? Like, would you ever? Could you ever have been a professional historian, whatever that is? Uh, well, obviously there are jobs in the field, but I think I was very much rooted in the school environment. Uh, I loved being in school. Um, I loved the classroom. I loved being um, in in that kind of professional learning education environment. Um, I think one of the turning points was uh, there was one time where our teacher just didn't turn up and I kind of like ran the class, you know, as an 18-year-old. I'm like, oh, just do assignment to just do this and that. And it just felt pretty like natural for me. And it turns out that my, my entire family are like, teachers and educators. So um, I think it's in the blood too. I mean, do you ever wonder sometimes if part of your career choice was as exactly as you said, it was just what you knew? Uh, I, I guess, um, I mean, I, I was quite open-minded about exploring different fields, like especially the IT and engineering. That was something no my family did. Uh, but when it came down to what what did I enjoy doing, and especially after doing it for 10 years now, uh, I felt that this was my calling. I think that's what the best, the best way to describe it. It's a calling. I felt this was what I wanted to do. It was calling out to me, reaching out to me, and I felt that my role wasn't necessarily 
to be at the forefront of like you know research or discovery but to guide the next generation through and i felt that deep connection with working with young people and helping them achieve their goals was it ever a question of whether you would teach high school versus primary school uh, I think I was very much committed to a uh, high school right away. Um, I guess for me, uh, my strengths lie with working with people who kind of already have an idea of who they are and what they want to do. I think primary school uh, is a lot of like creativity and growing up and that sort of thing. I thought that wasn't my skill set. Um, and I felt that I was probably more suited for this slightly older crowd. I mean, it's interesting though, because a, a lot of what um, uh, so a lot of the conversations I've had with other people, both on this podcast and, uh, you know, in real life, is the idea that it's actually, I actually find it a bit interesting that we are expected to know ourselves and know our career very early on. I mean, I know certainly myself, I, I mean, you know, you've heard a bit of my story throughout the throughout the, the podcast you might have heard but I um, I feel like I got brainwashed into being a doctor so that's why I always wonder you know so you you grew up with teachers so you became a teacher I grew up with with doctors I became a doctor so um, I guess you know I didn't know myself then whereas I feel like I only really know myself now in my mid-30s and in a way it feels too late and so I guess from as as a high school teacher how much do you from your experience, of course, how much do you feel kids really know themselves at, at the high school level? Uh, pretty much on a scale of one to ten, probably like a two. <laughs> because, uh, it's still very much a stage where growing up, uh, I, I, it's really unfair to expect kids to know where they are and who they are. I mean, they're making decisions for their um, tertiary studies and careers and in year nine and year ten, they have to pick subjects and we go through course counselling and they see me, so I don't know what to do. And even at year 12, they don't know what to do. And I think it's not so much that we we should be expecting them to know who they are, but we should be giving them the tools, the skills, the resilience, so that they are prepared to not only start a journey, not, not the journey, but a journey, but also be open-minded and flexible. So should things change later on, then they're not going to be stuck to one mindset and one career path. And I think like you and I, you know, we've changed our minds, we've changed our careers, and we've changed our outlook on things. Uh, more and more people now are you know, switching jobs and careers um, more often, and that's a good thing. That, that is, that's definitely not a bad thing. Um, and part of my role as a teacher, especially when thinking about my background, is to kind of um, subvert that expectations that, um, that uh, the parents, especially traditional parents, often have in expecting their kids to have a clear career goal. Um, and just make sure it's okay to experiment, okay to make, you know, perhaps a wrong career choice, but more importantly, to learn and move on from that. Did you face much resistance when you decided to go against your parents' wishes for you to become an engineer? Uh, it was one of the strangest conversations I've had uh, because my, my father, he doesn't know what an engineer, or he doesn't know what a programmer does, specifically programming. He thought it was a nice paying job. Um, he, he really knew that IT was, a, was, a, was the trending thing. So he put me to all these IT courses and then one day he said, like, he actually asked me and he said, like, David, how's, how's your plan of being a programmer going? And I said, oh, I actually didn't want to be a programmer. And he just looked at me and went, like, what? And I said, oh, I, I want to be a teacher. And it's just like exactly five seconds of awkward silence. And I went, oh, okay. That's it. <laughs> <I> said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, uh, are we supposed to have like the fight? Like this is where we, especially for the Asian dad, very uh, the mind, the Asian mindset is like, I should be, uh, I'm, I'm opposing my father's me. <laughs> he wanted me to do this. Yeah. And it was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. 
because he's a teacher. He knows what it's like. And that's, that's kind of how it came about. So surprisingly low resistance. I guess the other thing, though, is that within Vietnamese culture particularly, or maybe Asian cultures, I'm not sure, but Vietnamese culture, teachers are pretty revered. It may not Absolutely. necessarily be you know, the highest paid job, but I think in terms of status, it's not far off from doctor and... And lawyer and all those other kinds. Oh, absolutely, yeah, that, that's true. Definitely, in Vietnamese culture and all, all across most Asian cultures, I think teachers are definitely in one of the top high status jobs. Uh, like you said, it's not a high paying job, but definitely high respect, high status. Mm. So I actually got a lot of support from my family. Uh, I probably got less support from my actual teachers, who you know probably didn't see it <laughs> the same way. But uh, I, I definitely felt like it, I was not challenged. Um, in doing so in fact even now like I felt that it was the right choice uh, part of my job is of course to meet with parents and a lot of parents are from uh, immigrant backgrounds and especially Asian backgrounds and that that mutual respect is one of the more fulfilling things about the job um, they really trust you to take care of the children to guide them especially because many of them are they come to Australia from overseas they don't know how the system works they don't know about school or uh, education or pathways and they really trust you you know they will say look after my child for me and it's, it's a bit of a burden because you have you know, 100 people whose parents are saying this but at the same time is that that responsibility isn't something to be scared of it's something which I, I felt like I really thrived in accepting and embracing I mean, you've talked a lot about how much you love about the job. Are there things that you find challenging about being a high school teacher? Oh, definitely. I think a lot of it, it comes down to the expectations from the administration side. Uh, one of my teachers once told me that uh, teaching is one-third classroom, two-thirds admin. And being a teacher now, that's kind of exactly how it feels like. Uh, it's... Mm. A lot of like bookkeeping, a lot of uh, uh, record keeping, uh, making sure you tick the boxes and uh, make sure you uh, cover all the hours of professional learning you have to do and uh, that sort of thing. There's a lot of, uh, there's more and more workload involved behind the scenes. And I think a lot of people who become teachers think it's all about teaching in the classroom, but it's actually the classroom's the easy side. The hard side is making sure that you maintain everything else. So that's probably something which I didn't expect. Uh, but uh, I just happen to be from a background where I'm very good at organization. That, that said, uh, I think it's pretty tough, like right now, report writing time and exam season. That tends to slip. So, yeah, definitely a lot of crunch where it shouldn't be, but that's part of the job. I always find it, I find the idea of turning your passion into a job kind of fascinating because one of the one of the things I think we all eventually learn once we get to be an adult is that um, in order to maintain a job, there are other responsibilities that may not necessarily be the part of it that you love and you can't just cherry pick it. So as you said, you know, the, the, the actual interaction with a student is, is the part that you, and the teaching itself is the part that you love the most. But you didn't, when you signed on to the job, you didn't necessarily go, I love admin. Admin's great. <laughs> it's the thing I want to do. Um, I mean, how do you, how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile that, that the balance of the fact that this job, obviously, while not being perfect, no job is ever particularly perfect, is there are parts of it that are a struggle? Well, it's the same thing with uh, other hobbies, of other things like sports, for example. Like you, you might enjoy playing the game, but there's training involved. Like you can't play the game or compete if you don't train. And, you know, training isn't meant to be fun. Practice isn't meant to be fun. It's meant to condition you to be in the best performance. And I kind of see teaching the same way, that there are things which aren't fun, the things I wouldn't spend my spare time doing. Uh, like, for example, just before this cast, I was writing reports. <laughs> that's mm, that's not fun. exactly my idea of a Friday afternoon. 
but these are things which one like it, it prepares you and keeps you um honed it keeps you sharp for the the classroom um if you don't spend time to plan and prepare then your performance in classroom is going to suffer um if you don't mark work then you're going to fall behind the kids will be on your back but sir have you about my work yet so it's it's a bit of a hassle yes at the same time, it's a bit of a challenge as well. I think seeing it optimistically and positively are keys to maintaining a healthy career and balance. Mm. What, so um, uh, for, the, for the audience, what subjects do you teach? Uh, I teach, uh, my, my main methods are English and history. I do also teach geography. And as of last year, I've somehow found myself teaching Vietnamese. Oh, okay. How did <laughs> it sounds like you fell into that by accident? How did that happen? Did actually. Um, this was uh, this was somehow okay, the the things that you say in your job interview can sometimes come back to haunt you, right? <laughs> so uh, I said ten years ago um, that uh, again I teach English, I teach history, and the school was really happy to have me on board as a teacher because my I am a Vietnamese person, and being an English teacher as a Vietnamese person is something of a unique draw card. Um, not many people can have that claim, so it was really cool. Um, and I did mention in, in the job interview that um, you know I, I studied Lope when I was uh, in school and I really loved language and I thought one thing I want to do eventually is if I had to branch out and become a Lope teacher. Now, the language had a mum's Japanese. That was the one I, what I learned in year 12 and I really enjoyed Japanese language and culture. Uh, but yeah, 10 years later, <laughs> I, I got a call to the principal's office saying, we kind of need uh, a year 7 Vietnamese teacher. And you, you, you see you want to do Lope, right? So, uh, you know... And I went, uh, I guess. <laughs> um, but it was quite important too because at the time, like I've been teaching for, what, eight, nine years, uh, the same kind of subjects, and I wanted a bit of a change, a bit of a challenge, especially when you've been in the same job for so long. You have to reinvent yourself. And I thought this is a great way to go into my 10th year of teaching, that, you know, get that milestone, but also do something new. Not the same thing for 10 years in a row, but something new. And I, I liked it. I, I found it difficult. There, were, there weren't many resources. Um, and the way I taught was very much uh, influenced by the way I grew up learning Vietnamese, which wasn't a positive experience. Uh, but I wanted to subvert that. And I told the kids the first day, look, who hates Vietnamese school? The Saturday morning <laughs> Viet school. So, right, who hates Viet school? And everybody put their hand up. Yep. And then I said, I'm nothing like that. And everybody cheered. The standing ovation. Everyone got up through the chairs in the air. Like, this is great. This is the best class ever. And that's, that's been the feedback, actually. Um, I teach things differently, knowing my background. But also, I, I keep to the same traditional roots. So we still learn what we meant to learn. But we do it in a much different way that they enjoy and that I would have enjoyed when I was a kid. So let's, um, for those non-Viets, because I, I too, as every Viet child does, go to Viet school. In fact, my Viet school combined <laughs> with, with a Sunday school. So that was an excellent lesson in how to be bored for four hours. But yeah, for people who don't know, what exactly is involved in Viet school? So a lot of people might be uh, involved in language school. So uh, it's, it's quite common, especially here in, in Melbourne, where it's such a diverse and multicultural community. And typically that, uh, different, different Asian. schools. Different... I think Asian cultures tend to have these kind of lengthy schools. I don't, I don't, I think I've really heard much about Greek or Italian schools to be honest. I live in an area with plenty of Greek people and Italian people so definitely definitely Greek. Uh, Greek schools happen a lot. I've seen Russian, um, Somali and so on. So plenty of people learn um, languages outside. I mean my dad used to work for um, the state association for language schools. So definitely, like there's like you know forty languages being taught on weekends. Um, but for those who don't know, like for anyone doing this, it's basically you go to a um a school on a Saturday or Sunday, 
and it's basically like three or four hours straight of learning language. Uh, it's different. In, we do it in school as part of your regular schooling. It's kind of broken up the period, so it's a bit easy to manage. It's more bite-sized. But this is intense three or four hours of language. Unfortunately for me, the experience was like you have, you know, old teacher imported from Vietnam who just did it for a job and just couldn't connect. And the worst part of it, and I think you'll, you'll probably agree with me too, is that you're often put in classrooms where you just have no idea what they're asking you to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, yeah, it just comes to the same thing. Like, you, you're Vietnamese, they expect you to understand what you meant to do. Like, you're, you're here, write this uh, 2000 word essay on women in Vietnam. Like, well, 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 we don't really know much about that, and nor do we have the vocab, but that's your VC exam, so good luck with that. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's like I said, that's what influenced me to change the way I teach Vietnamese. Um, I, well, I definitely want to make sure that I, I, the language of instruction is going to be in English for one. It's a generation apart. These kids speak Viet at home. Some do, many don't. And I just wanted to make sure that everyone in the class had the same opportunity, especially because we have a mixed class where there are non-Vietnamese people. Um, you know, token white guy syndrome, which is a great <laughs> fun to have. But like, it, it was. I, I made sure, and my personal goal is to make sure that the one Australian kid in class could enjoy the class, and if he enjoyed it, then everyone else would enjoy it too. And that was the fun. I think with languages, particularly, there is. I mean, look, not that I've ever learned how to teach languages, but I think there is this sort of philosophy of immersion. The idea that if you yes. immerse yourself in the language, you'll pick it up, except there really has to be a balance between the two. Like, you need some base knowledge and some base understanding in order to be immersed. Otherwise, people are just jabbering at you in, in words you don't understand. And there's Absolutely. Uh, that, that's what I was kind of told. At that part. I, I was given a very, very, very brief um, like uh, briefing, I guess, uh, to teaching language. And my goal was twofold. One is, first, make it fun. That was my first directive from the faculty. I went, okay, well, I don't have to teach it, but I can make it fun, sure. Mm. But the second thing was build immersion. And that was something I kind of didn't do my first year doing this, and I tried to do more of it later on, um, is to build that immersion. Now, that, thing's exposed, that means exposure to things like the language being uh, spoken, the language being used. Uh, many of the kids already have that from their families and you know, going out to the shops and so on. But I guess for me, something I kind of sacrificed, just knowing that I, especially when we only have like two periods a week, to teach a language we can't really give exposure in such a short time frame so part of it is you know slowly introducing the kids to more common things like instructions things like feedback um that way uh you know it's kind of like you you, you sound out how how familiar they are in the language of instruction. So if someone who is very confident and speaks Vietnamese, I'll ask them to read in Vietnamese. I'll give them feedback in Vietnamese. They get used to hearing it. Those who haven't really been exposed to it, I'll do a mix of 50-50. You know, it's kind of like half Viet, half English, which a lot of us speak at home anyway. So mm. um, that sort of thing is, yeah, like I said, it's mostly like sounding out what the kids are most comfortable with and working at a level that they want to access. What um what I find interesting about teaching is is the idea of of what you're technically qualified for. So my husband used to be a high school teacher, and his interests were drama and legal studies. So two mm-hmm. very disparate subjects, and um not necessarily high. Well, actually, depending on where you are, it could be high demand. But um as soon as he said legal studies, it then fell under the category of uh, of SOS, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Which <laughs> uh, which remind me again, what does SOS stand for? 
Uh, studies to society and the environment. Yes. All right. So when once he hit that, then all of a sudden he was therefore qualified to teach English and geography and a whole bunch of other yep. things that he had no preparation <laughs> for, no training for. But because he kind of had one category, one one subject within that category, they're just like, we don't need you for this, but we're going to chuck you into these other things. Uh, absolutely. If, if you can write a sentence, you're an English teacher and a literature teacher. If you can write numbers, you're a science teacher and a maths teacher. <laughs> so, so how do you how do you reconcile that? Because obviously, you you being a man of high standards, you want to make sure that your that what you teach them and the way you teach them is is good and and allows them to absorb. But when it's a subject that you don't necessarily have specialist training in, how do you cope with that? Um, adapt and survive. <laughs> a lot of it is like you, you bring in what you do know, you do well, you bring in what you do know. Um, for example, with language, there is a very, very clear method of teaching language, which I don't follow, <laughs> admittedly, but you know, we make it work. But uh, I came in with an English background, I came in with a um, geography background, a history background. Um, and I, when I created lessons for, for Vietnamese, I kind of threw it for a lens. Uh, with a lens of a, a history teacher or of 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 an English teacher, so it's kind of like I'm going to teach this lesson on sentence structures, but in Vietnamese. Now there are differences, of course, mm-hmm. but the 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 method isn't all that different. Uh, so, you know, for example, we're looking at a research project to pair Vietnam to Australia. We did mapping, we did uh, tables, and we did some uh, some analysis, and all that was like, hey, this is what I do in my history class. So that that was kind of what worked well. Uh, it's kind of adapting the structures, the strategies, the methods which you already use into a different uh, subject area. Some things work. Some things are very clean transfers. Some things don't work. You have to uh, figure out or learn from other people what's done. And some of the best um, PD or professional you can do is to go to the photocopy room and look at what people leave behind and steal it. <laughs> Well, theoretically, <laughs> I think that the the formal term for that would be sharing of ideas. Um, but yeah, whether 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 that's what it really is is, is debatable. Um, okay, so you mentioned earlier about how you know you got to the ten year mark in your career and you felt like you were ready for a change. Did you ever? Would you could you ever conceptualize just doing the same job forever? Um, that's what I thought when I started. Now, when I was a young, naive, twenty-one-year-old, I guess um, I thought, you know what, this is kind of like going to be my, like like a marriage. I'm going to be committed to my career, um, especially because this is a field where people tend to last forever. <laughs> people burn out a lot, of course, but you see a lot of committed, dedicated, and the, the favorite teachers are the ones who stick around for like a you know, hundred years. <laughs> and mm. I definitely had plenty of those last in school. I thought, man, I want to be like my science teacher. He's been teaching for like fifty years. I can do that, and I mean, I'll be like seventy when I, you know, when I finish teaching. So I could do a fifty-year streak, get a shiny like platinum plaque or something. I don't know. Uh, so I thought I thought it was quite viable. After after like I heard that three years was like the the first burnout point, and I survived three years. Then I survived five, and then I survived ten. I'm like, this is I'm going pretty well here. I'm not really tiring. Um, so I definitely still have plenty of gas in the tank. But that said, you know, like now that I've kind of gotten past the hump. I might be feeling a bit of complacency, like, you know, I'm doing this, I'm enjoying it. I don't feel that hunger for change or for progression. I'm quite content doing what I have. And the main reason is that uh, it gives me a fairly flexible platform to do other things I enjoy. 
Yes, which uh, which is a nice little segue into your mm-hmm. other profession, which is yep. an archery YouTuber. Tell us more about that. Yes, so um, I guess it's a running joke. The kids are like, oh, you should be making make, make a YouTube channel. It's not because the kids are like social media savvy. They're on Facebook, they're on um, uh, Snapchat now, Instagram and YouTube, and everyone wants to have like, that YouTube fame. And Well, now I have it, so that was kind <laughs> of a, a joke gone way too far. But, um, but yeah, like at the time, like uh, I... I uh, was interested in watching a lot of YouTube channels, me and my then partner. Um, we were watching people like uh, Natalie Tran, who runs Community Channel. Um, they were watching like Wong Fu Productions and all that sort of stuff. But a lot of the uh, the content was like vlogs and comedy. And uh, we, we kind of wanted to do it ourselves too. This was like way back, over 10 years ago. Um, in the end, we broke up. But I kept the camera, and uh, <laughs> I thought, well, yeah, I've got the camera. I spent like a thousand bucks on it. I, mean, I could start making stuff for myself. And um, that's what I started doing. I started doing things like unboxing videos and vlogs, which were everyone was doing back then. Um, and uh, eventually, I, I started doing archery as well. And um, one of the the big the, the biggest uh, motivating factors in me creating a dedicated archery channel was that um, when I started out, there wasn't much information out there. I mean, the it wasn't a secret. Everyone knew this sort of stuff, but it wasn't being circulated. You had to go to a club and ask like the old man with the beard to uh, explain to you. And I thought, well, that's not a very accessible way of doing things. Like, surely, like, especially now, more and more people are going on Google. They're going on YouTube to find things like tutorials, how to do things, how to buy things, how to make things. And there wasn't really much of it, especially in my particular discipline. Uh, I do Olympic archery, which is what you see on the Olympic Games, with the modern sporty bows, the flashy colors and stuff. And while most of the content was like hunting or traditional. So there was a huge gap. And I thought, well, there has to be a way, like somebody should be making content to fill this gap so that ne- the next person who wants to learn archery has, can have a much better start. And it clicked, and I thought, well, I can do that. I'm in a good position. I'm not the expert, not yet anyway, but I'm definitely learning a lot and I've gained a lot of knowledge and skills in the previous uh, eight months or so. And while I didn't feel qualified or um, comfortable teaching things like advanced skills, uh, I definitely knew things about the basics. And that's kind of what provided that foundation for making the channel. In fact, my very first video uh, was buying a particular piece of equipment. There was a finger tab, that glove you wear when you shoot, uh, shoot bows, because... Everyone uses one, but nobody talks about it. And mm. that was like, gee, I've bought like 10 of these things. And they go for like $5, like $100. And it was really nice if someone explained what the difference was before you spent money on it. And that was my first video for archery. And that was extremely popular. People were like searching it up because they wanted this. And that's pretty much what gave me that traction and that momentum to make more and more archery videos because I found out what, based on my experience as an archer, based on my experience as an instructor, um, what people were being challenged by, what people wanted to find out. And that just gave me more and more ideas. I thought, you know what, I'm going to make a video about it. Somebody asked me a question. Um, I thought, that's a good question. I'll make a video to answer the question for you and for a thousand other people. That was the real foundation. And so how, how, uh, how often do you put out content? 
Uh, I guess when I started, when I could really, and that might be like twice a week or once a week. Um, and you know, there, there are busy seasons where you know I, I might have a lot of things to make, um, and I'll push out a video every week or two, two a week. But there are times where I slow down. Yeah, you know, the, the the other side of work, the teacher side, kind of takes priority. That's my main job. So, for example, in the exam season, I go, you know what? I'll I'll take a break from YouTube. I'll focus more on the teaching side. And when we get to quite on teaching, I'll stack up like three or four videos a week and I make those on, on YouTube. So it really depends. Um, I try to go for at least one video a week on average. Uh, but sometimes you, I might feel like I want to push out multiple things, especially when things are trending, uh, when there are interesting topics and things I really want to talk about right now that are relevant. They can't really wait. How do you, um, I mean, do you have much in the experience in the way of filmmaking per se? Absolutely none. <laughs> yeah, so when I started, I had no experience uh, in filmmaking. Uh, I, I didn't know how to use a camera. I didn't know how to use an editor. I didn't know what an editor was. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing was something which I learned as, a, as, a, as, I, as I went along. Um, like a lot of this is learning by doing. That, that, that's a lot of true for a lot of things. Um, not, not for surgery, by the way, but for other things, you can definitely learn by doing. <laughs> well, actually, you, uh... <laughs> technically, it is learning by doing with surgery. I'll, I'll tell you that as a doctor, it is. Um, but you just, you're just very heavily supervised. It's a, it is the difference. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But uh, I, I was unsupervised, so there's no one to mentor me. And that's, that's one of the reasons why um, these days I spend more time going around to events like VidCon, which happened in Melbourne a few months ago, where I get to uh, meet and network with other creators. Again, this is the sort of thing which I wished I had when I started. Um, and now that I'm, I've got that experience behind me, I can mentor other people in doing so. But yeah, a lot of it was just getting started and learning the tools, learning the methods, and personally, one of my goals was like for every video I, I made, I would do something new. I would learn something from it. A new editing trick, a new transition, um, a new mistake, which I would learn from. That was priority number one, was learn from every product. I mean, what what, what interests me about this from a, from a very personal point of view is it's a question of motivation and time. So for me, so my my extracurricular passion is screenwriting and I, I enjoy it while I'm doing it and I enjoy the finished product. But I guess what I always struggle with is the idea that, A, I'm often time poor because I've got kids, I've got a job. Um, you know, I, 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 like, I like having a social life to some degree. Uh, and so finding the time and the motivation to build these skills to actually, you know, it's one thing to, to write a screenplay. It's another thing to actually learn from it, to, ed- to review it, to edit it, to, to make, you know, the fifth or sixth draft, to take on critiques. There's a lot yeah. of energy behind it. And so for you, what, I mean, how do you, what drives you, I guess? What drives you to continue to improve the, uh, the quality of your videos and to continue making content? I guess my my philosophy is like, uh, in a pessimistic way, it's like perpetual unhappiness. Mm. Like, I guess it's true for many creators, right? Many creators, you, you you're never happy with your work. You know, no matter what you do, how good your screenplay is, or how good your video is, you always pick up. Oh, I could have done this better. I could have done this better. And that's kind of like I'm. I I guess I have a perfectionist streak, which makes a lot of sense. If it's not the best I can do, I want to do it better. Uh, there are plenty of things which I think are good enough. But at the same time, there are things I don't know. There are new limitations, and I try to exceed those. Because I, I guess for me, the, the motivation is mostly intrinsic. 
I want to make the best thing I possibly can. And more importantly for my field on YouTube is to make the best video for that particular demand. Now, that video might be, for that point in time, the best, or it might be good enough, and that's fine. But I will come across something where I realize I can't do this. Not currently, not with my current skill set. So that kind of drives me because I know nobody else will make this. Only I can do this. I have the creativity. I have the insight. I have the expertise and the experience. So somebody needs to do this. I may be the best person right now. I do hope that other people rise up and make better stuff later on. I'm not that sort of person who will hog that limelight. But at the moment, I feel like I'm in the position where I can do it justice. So that's what I think was the main motivation was to be completionist, complete things and do things. We just have to be there, make it better later, but get it out there first. Um, That that formed the the roadmap for most of my channel early on Um, was covering the basics, covering the high demand topics. And like like I said, I was a very amateur um, camera person, just stick a camcorder, a tripod, didn't know anything about lighting, didn't know anything about uh, audio and microphones, just stuck a camcorder. Um, audio was terrible, so I just shouted a lot more, used, used a higher voice projection or filmed in quiet conditions or something. So I worked around the limitations. And as the barriers became more insurmountable, I upskilled, I upgraded until I could do something. Um, a good example of this is um, yeah, my, my camcorder actually broke. You know, the, the, micro, the, uh, the memory stopped working. And first, I'm like, oh, damn, you know, that's, that's a $1,000 camera. That's been like six years, so not a, not a big deal. Mm. Um, I was very apprehensive about a new camera. I wasn't sure what I was getting. And there was a motivation to learn about cameras. I started learning about, uh, you know, digital self-loading cameras and that sort of stuff, mirrorless cameras. And I suddenly became a camera expert, you know, within like, you know, two minutes because I'm trying to buy stuff and drop a 1000 bucks in a new camera. Um, and while I was there, I, I was getting on microphones and... I learned about microphones and what the professional used. And by the time I walked out with a $2,000 kit, I was making like really bright, like professional videos. Uh, first time around the new camera, um, I had the best audio because I was using a lapel mic, which nobody else used at the time. And it was like, wow, this is amazing. I, I almost look like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and that felt amazing. It's like you, like you see yourself, um, after like five years, and you, you, you can't see how you've changed. And it's like, you know, well, for me watching like my first video, I can't watch it because I'm like, yeah. man, that was terrible. The lighting's bad. The audio's horrible. There's too much like noise in the background. My haircut was terrible. I was like, well, I've come a long way since. Um, and that kind of ties back to what I said before about pathways and journeys. Like we can't be locked into being just one thing. And I, instead of being ashamed of making like uh, inferior content, embrace it. And look forward to the fact that you can improve. And in five years' time or in 10 years' time, you wouldn't know how bad you were because you've come so far. But at what point do you decide... I mean, this, and this, is, this is my big question to you because I think you are, you are a few stages ahead of where I am in terms of, well, like, of my career journey. But at what point do you decide, 
to like when when you experience limitations of your own knowledge and yes okay this to some degree you can learn a lot from google but at what point you decide to commit to spending more time like let's say for example that you wanted to be uh really professional about it and so right. you know at, to the point where google the, the limitations of google became apparent and maybe at this point you need to go to school so you actually need to go back to uni go to a film school or do a uh, an arts degree or something to try and learn which would then obviously eat and which is obviously an expenditure uh, uh, money expenditure it's a time expenditure what do you do when you hit that barrier uh make the choice uh balance out what what you have to gain from it um a, 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 a fairly low-key example but something which i tell my students because it's about to them um i'm a big gamer i love playing video games right so the sort of person who play one two hours a night three hours it's a really like a bit of quiet night and the kids will play more than me obviously the kids but i told my kids i look they spent like two three hours a night playing you know a game playing call of duty or playing league of legends and counter strike and you, you you find it fun and that's great i find it's fun too but ask the same question would this time that you invest in this activity be better spent elsewhere that has something to show for it? If you spent that, those two hours playing games, but you invest that time to, say, learning a language, can you have something to show for it? And a lot of these things are long-term investments. You won't see that immediately. It might take five years or ten years to finally pay off. And it's very hard to tell a teenager, uh, do this for the next ten years yeah. and you'll be in a good position. right? It's, you can't do that. But that's a sort of seed you plant. You have the conversation and it gets to the point where people are becoming better at making that judgment call. Now, for some like us in our in our age our age bracket, where we're in our 30s, we've done a career for a long time, we're going to change careers and upskill or um, go sideways, I guess. That sort of thing can be really hard. There's no, there's no doubt. There's, there's no one like um, criteria where, well, pull the trigger, go and do this thing instead. It comes down to, I guess, like cost-benefit. Is it worth more of my time to keep on doing what I'm doing and keep on playing this as a pipe dream or have reached the point where this current situation is not working for me? Is it really me that needs to change now? So I guess, again, there's no easy way of doing this, but in simple terms, make the jump. Uh, if, if it gets to the point where it doesn't seem like it's going to lead you somewhere, then it's time to move on. And that's something easy to tell yourself. I guess the hard part is just getting over it. It just you feel like you're, it's a brand new word out there. You're not sure what you're getting yourself into. And you end up you know, going through regret perhaps. Uh, but my only advice really is just to uh, see perspective. Is this the sort of thing you'd be happy doing for the next five or ten years? And that's the hard part because I think certainly once you get to our age, part of the, part of the thing is that the things you gain happiness from isn't is rarely ever singular you, you often gain mm. happiness from a variety of things from relationships whether it be family or kids or friends or whatever uh from from your work from having money like financial security is a big thing by the time you get to your 30s most people will have some sort of financial commitment whether it be a mortgage or a car yep. loan or whatever it may be and so your your considerations no longer are, are, are singularly factorial it's it, it's everything it's, it's multifactorial it's all the little things together and you have to decide well how how valuable are these things to me once once you add them all up and then when you get to the end of that conclusion you have to decide well how much am i willing to give up how much am Absolutely. i willing to sacrifice and how much 
how much happiness am I willing to to live with? Because the the truth is, I mean, being a hundred percent happy is not realistic. The world doesn't work like that. You can't Absolutely. facilitate everything you want. Um, so yeah, how do you how do you come to that decision? So for you, it sounds to me like you found the right balance in that you've uh, you know you've got the mix of your teaching, which you love, and you've got the archery, which does mix in a bit of teaching, but also the the idea of creation is something you love, but. Yep. You, it, it seems to me, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but you've reached the point in your in both careers where you are probably as happy as you're going to be right now in that with your teaching, you uh, I don't know, maybe whether or not you have aspirations to become a, a year-level coordinator or whether you want to become a principal, I don't know, or whether with your YouTubing, do you want to turn that into a full-time job to actually turn that into a bit of an empire? The, and I don't, uh, you know, you've, you've found that kind of right mix between the both. But my question is, what happens when one starts superseding the other? What do you yeah, do? Yeah, the big question is, you know, would I eventually switch to being a full-time YouTuber? That's the question everybody asks me, the kids ask me, and then everybody else does. It was, you know, YouTube is a career for many people. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. Like, I think I've reached a point at the moment where things are balanced. Now, will it stay that way? Probably not. But if I have a good balance. And <laughs> as, for, as long as I can, I want to maintain the balance and make sure I enjoy both sides as much as I can. Um, there, there will be a point where you to be an archery itself becomes stressful. Um, that's happened this year. I burnt out from volunteering too much, stopped enjoying it, stopped doing video, stopped doing archery, and just focus more on the the, uh, the teaching side. There are times where teaching becomes very really stressful when I don't enjoy it, and I start moving to more on the other sides or doing something else completely different. Might be learning piano or learn to draw, and just basically venting, uh, continually adapting and being flexible. And putting you know that that stress, that energy towards something that can be reductive, that can kind of upset that balance. So especially when things are skewed towards one side in a negative way, you know sometimes you can't fight that. But so instead of trying to resist it, you do other things to alleviate that. So uh, go back to the question of you know whether you know if I were to be unhappy with my teaching one day and do YouTube, uh, that's going to be a big call. Uh, and I feel that I wouldn't make that jump because I'm a very conservative person in terms of making decisions. I'm not a risk taker at all. So everything's really thought out. For me, uh, I wouldn't make that jump unless there was some certainty that there would be some stability. That's why teaching was a safe choice for me in the first place because I actually wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. And I thought I'll be teaching and I'll be writing. Mm-hmm. I ended up doing a YouTuber, so not quite the same thing, but I'd write for my YouTube channel, so close enough. So, but the point is that like, our teaching was meant to be a stable platform. And the fact that I really enjoyed it was a big bonus. Uh, and I, I, I thought in long term, I'll teach it for as long as I can, and uh, I'll open more opportunities along the way. And should teaching close for me, I've opened many doors outside. So that way I can have other places to go without feeling that risk. I know many people see this as kind of black and white. You take the risk, you take the plunge. For me, it's more about keeping my do- my feet in as many doors as possible. I think that's my thing. So like I said, at the moment, YouTube could be an opportunity. I earn a certain amount of revenue from YouTube. It's, I mean, hypothetically enough to live off, not a whole lot, but I just be able to skim through. But if I go full-time, I could increase that. I get sponsorships. I've got the, uh, the reputation I've, I've built over nearly 10 years of being on the platform. And that carries a lot of brand value. 
Um, I could become an archery coach. Uh, I could become a high-performance athlete. I could become an administrator and work for the National Association. So these things are now open to me because of the early things I've done. Um, and that's why I keep telling my, 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 my students, like, don't like, just lock yourself into the room playing games and doing your math homework, which your dad tells you to. Like, get out there and do different things to sow many seeds. So should something not go your way, you have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D. And maybe plan D might not be the best choice for you, but it might be the best choice for that situation you find yourself in. So, yeah, I guess to answer the question very roundabout about way, I don't see it as pulling the trigger and just flipping over and go, All right, I'm going to commit my time and money and resources to seeking career path. I approach this from a much more safe uh, angle where I'm going to start something. I, I might not go all the way with it early on, but I'll start it so I can pick it up later on should I have to. I mean, there there are a number of there are a number of points in there I want to bring up. Firstly, I um <clears throat> I actually dispute the fact that you say you're not a risk taker because I know for me, um I, I'm also a very conservative person, which is why that why me making the leap to screenwriting is uh, has been very slow and, and uh, trepidatious because I too often, far too often, I'm hearing and reading uh, on different places, you have to quit your day job. In order mm. to commit to a creative art, you have to commit your entire life to it. And I, honestly, I think that's crap. I think that you you have, again, you have other things in your life that are important. And if there are people relying on you or people other things you want to achieve, really, dead, you know, throwing, tossing away your entire life life in order to achieve this one thing feels really naive to me um but i but with you what you did was you sorry no sorry this is my point even going into this podcast i wanted things to be perfect before i even did it so before i even started i thought you know what i just i want to know everything i want to make sure i understand everything so when i go into it i make a good product but it just all it did was hold me back all I did was I, I got oh, caught yeah. in the in the fear cycle uh, of uh, and the, the perfectionist cycle. So I for me I I also am perfectionist, but I have the opposite reaction, which is it leads me to freeze rather than fight. And um, uh, whereas you you did something, but you you bought you bought a camera, sure, and yes, a thousand dollars is a decent investment, but. At the same time, you didn't you didn't worry about the quality of the video. You didn't worry about audio. You didn't do all the research before you went into it. You actually just started doing it, and that actually is a, is a good lesson, I think, because I find that sometimes there there is a as with everything there is a there is a line there is a, there is a spectrum there is such a thing as moderation. Being somewhat prepared is important. Yes, being over prepared and assuming that you by being over prepared you'll make the perfect product is unrealistic. But you, the fact of the matter is you actually did it and you just went, you know, you learned along the way and in in a way, and as you said, you kind of accepted your mistakes. You don't necessarily yes. flick back on them, but you accepted them. And that's and that's a big skill. I mean, that, that I think that's actually a really important quality that we should be teaching kids is that making mistakes is an inherent part of the process and it's not something to fear. It's just something that is and therefore, and as long as you make something productive out of it, um, then then that's that's certainly a positive thing. Absolutely. Know? One of the things which I teach my students is don't sacrifice good for perfect. We're not looking for perfect uh, essays or perfect things. We're looking for good things. As long as you keep on getting better, then that's, that's the goal. Um, if you have a choice between doing something which uh, might not be 100% versus not doing it, then it's better to do it and get, get at something which might, might be subpar. It might be decent, but... 
do it. Uh, and like you said, I think it is a big skill. Um, for me, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd literally told myself verbally, it's okay. It's not that bad. It's good enough. Now, with that, the particular word there, good enough, was something which I kept on telling myself a lot. And this is kind of subverting that perfectionism where you want everything to be perfect. And in my early um, videos especially, I've made sure everything was perfect. I I scripted everything. I would actually write the entire you know 10-minute script. For many reasons, I wanted to make sure it was perfect, that it was accurate, that I researched well, that I didn't miss anything, which is a flaw I identified in many other videos, was that they kind of talked off the top of their head, and they just improvised things, and they went in circles, so it wasn't a high-quality, clean presentation. So I knew I was going to sacrifice that smoothness in favor of having precision. And I made sure the script covered that. And a lot of my videos, you actually see me reading, looking down at my script and just trying to make sure I could get it right. Uh, I would like to upgrade to a laptop teleprompter and just put it under my camera. So it was a pretty awkward thing, but that was my priority. I would sacrifice one thing, knowing that this was a superior product. Now, when it got to the point where uh, it was, I, I wasn't happy with that, then again, I learned that skill. So I went from trying to do um, a perfect take to doing smaller cuts, reading paragraph by paragraph, line by line, um, integrating better transitions. So these mistakes would not be as evident. Uh, but the big part is, is like I am someone who likes being prepared, but I reached a point where I was comfortable enough to work within a certain amount of wiggle room. Um, initially, that was a very, very small margin. So I had to be super prepared. But like, with years and years of experience, you get more comfortable going into things without needing to be prepared. It actually feels better. Back to teaching even. We're taught to make lesson plans and have to write everything out, learning goals, materials, worksheets, and everything. And you don't really want to walk to a class unprepared. That's a horrible feeling. But now I feel I can. In fact, I did today. <laughs> it wasn't the best lesson, but I was okay. I enjoyed it. The kids enjoyed it. Goal was met. So I wouldn't do this in my first few years. But with that exposure that experience, especially learn from the mistakes, you become less apprehensive. You feel you, you freeze less when you expose these situations and that experience drives you to adapt to the new situations. And I think that's something which really must be valued is experience. In any field, any field you do, experience is such a valuable resource because the difference someone who hasn't done it before because someone's done it a million times, is that that person can do it blindfold, upside down, their sleep. And that, that's what makes it special to have someone with the experience to come in to teach, to mentor, and to do things. Because it doesn't feel as daunting. They make it look easy. And you, you, you aspire to be that person who makes it look easy. I think the second point I wanted to make, which certainly ties into that, is uh, while I agree that certainly experience is valuable, I think the other big thing is motivation. I think having the right motivation and having the um, the sort of the passion for it really makes things a whole lot easier. And so again, it sounds like for you, you have the motivation for both of your careers in that they are both things that interest and fascinate you. Um, but I guess where, what happens when the motivation has gone? What do you do then? Find more motivation. <laughs> find, yeah. find a reason to be motivated. I, I know. I guess you guess you're asking someone who's very motivated. What happens when it's gone? It's kind of like asking a rich person. What happens when money's gone? Um, it's. Uh, I mean, I can't say I'm. I'm. I'm always motivated, but there are reasons for me to be motivated. Um, I mean, personally, it's a. It's a philosophy. Like for me, it's 
always be a better person than you were yesterday. I've told myself that since I was like 15 and I've kept that all the way through my whole life. And uh, whenever I feel like I'm getting uh, too comfortable with my current goals, then I'm like, well, you know, am I unhappy with something else? And that's something which I've, I've said, of, I'm not the sort of person who freezes at the idea of a challenge. I'm like, well, how can I best approach it? Um, random things like, you know what, I'm not happy with my weight right now. So maybe I could, instead of being sad about it, I'll start doing 15 minutes of exercise a day or something or making more of an effort to go for a walk or some more time outside. Um, I might be unhappy that uh, I've forgotten how to play piano. So I'll spend five or 10 minutes playing piano. A lot of it is just taking action and rather than go, I wish I could do this or I'm not motivated to do this. I find a reason to be motivated. And a lot of it is come down to, am I unhappy with something and can I do something about it? The other extreme end, I guess this is where it might explain why I'm, I'm so rooted with passion and motivation, is I've built a lot of anti-role models in my life. Not role models, but anti-role models. The people who you don't want to be like. And a lot of people in life have reached dead ends in their career or they've done nothing with their lives. They've kind of bummed out. Um, they've, they've got dead end jobs or they've got like the unemployed. And uh, I look back at their life choices and I go, I don't want to be that kind of person. Nowhere near it. And I almost try myself to be extreme to do so. Some of these are, are negative vices too. Like uh, I speak to my, my brother. Um, uh, he, he was someone who lived a life. He worked a, in security. He, um, he got paid. He lived by paycheck to paycheck. And he would go into debt and he would pay his steps and borrow money and sort of thing. And eventually it just got, got too much for him. He couldn't pay debts. He got married and financial crisis hit. So it was in you know, debts with loan sharks and credit card companies. And it just ruined the family for me. And I'm like, I'm never going to be that sort of person who puts a family under that much pressure. And especially for us Asians, that much shame. So mm-hmm. we lost a lot of face, especially in his family and his, 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 um, his wife's family. And we look like peasants, and that's something which which never we never reconciled. Um, and for me, I'm like I did not want to shame my parents. I did not want to, you know, be the person my brother was. So um, I I never spent. Uh, I never spent like crazy as he did. He would collect DVDs and games. He would never play and watch that sort of thing. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna be really, really stingy. I'm gonna be really um, controlling of my own expenses. And, and things like, you know, nowadays I'm a bit more relaxed. I can have Uber Eats tonight and don't care about it too much because I've earned enough money to go, I'm comfortable. But my margin for that was extremely wide. Like, I would be stingy until I got to my, what, seventh year of my career and I have multiple revenue streams. Then finally go, you know what? I won't drive today. I'll take an Uber. But it took me a long time to get there because I was so deeply ingrained in this mentality of do not be like my anti-role model. Um, another example is, I guess, my, my ex-partner, you know, who, you know, the sort of thing is like, I, I don't want to end up like she did. And she's in a good place now, I'm sure. But at the time, you know, when we broke up, she was not in a good place. And I've given the opposite way. Um, instead of being uh, demotivated or making excuses or um, just taking time, taking it really slowly, I went, no, 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 that's going to end me in this situation which I don't want to be in. So I'm going to take this as... I guess a fear factor, like because I'm so afraid of being a failure or being a dead end, I want to do everything in my power to push myself out of the rut and get me going in the right pathway. 
that I guess is kind of the, the real the real deep point, the real real source of the motivation is I want to be a better person than the people around me. I want to be a better person for my students because they're the ones who look up to me. And if they look up to me and think I would be like you, that would drive me to be more motivated to be a better person that they can aspire to be like me. So I guess I don't, I don't really have an answer for what happens around our motivation. All I can say is find motivation, find a reason to be a better person than you were yesterday. I mean, that's uh, obviously, I, I think that's quite a, a positive position to take. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, that's really unfamiliar to me. <laughs> but the different personality types, of course. Um, I, I, one of the, I, I guess on the topic of motivation, one of the other things I find interesting is is this generation. Now, I, I, I know 34 isn't particularly old, but I feel very, very old. Um, and particularly the concept of, uh, of Twitch. So the idea of people creating gaming videos and people making money of people just watching them play, that's, that, that is completely foreign to me. Like, I, I don't understand it at all. But what I find interesting about it as, as, I guess, an outsider and observer is that theoretically, theoretically, you can actually make money from playing games. Like, Absolutely. you can actually do something of that. And that's... That's not a mentality that I, I know myself being the age I am. That's not a mentality that I certainly have. And I guess I wonder how do you adapt to that? Because as you said, you know, you're, you know, one of the earlier examples you said was rather than playing three hours of games, can you spend some of the time learning a language? But how, what if playing games actually gets the money? What do you do then? Be really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> like maximum, it's more of that opportunistic entrepreneur mindset. Like, if you're in a position where this can get you, like, a revenue stream, this can make you money, then do it. I'm not so conservative where I would dismiss someone who has a budding YouTube channel or a Twitch channel to not do it. My advice is learn how to do it well. Mm-hmm. Learn what people do, what works, and especially what doesn't work, and understand your marketing, and your goals. Um, again, through working through with creators at VidCon and other places, um, I, I, I get exposed to a lot of people who just copy their role models. They do exactly what their role models do, and they fail. Not because they're playing games, but because they don't understand what people want to watch. And that's what my role as a teacher, not just at school, but also otherwise, is, is to kind of open the perspective and make people think about what they are doing and how they can best position themselves to succeed with it. So I, I, I've made money for playing games. I've had opportunities from um, working with developers and getting exclusives and covering games being paid for it. So I, I've got a taste of that. Do I enjoy it? No, not really. I don't really enjoy playing games for entertainment for other people. I play for myself, not for other people. I got tired of it. I left, I left that kind of thing behind me. But for anyone thinking of doing it, it's viable, but you also need to be realistic. And unfortunately, like again, our generation be kind of, and even for the for the risk takers, we have a more grounded basis in the reality of the economy. Like we know, like if I if I can make a donut, I can't just make a donut in my kitchen and then expect to sell a thousand of them on the street. Right? I need to have I need to be realistic, and there are physical limitations and financial limitations to what we can and can't do. With things like Twitch and gaming, because it's digital, there is no restriction. You know, like you can make, anyone can record a video or um, live stream their gameplay and put it online. So there's no limitation. So because of that, everyone does it. And because of that, it requires a, 
a bit more of, uh, I guess, a, a tech-savvy or a market-savvy mindset to understand what actually works. And at some point, though, I mean, this is this is the part that I guess for me, I, I've talked about limitations, is that at some point there is only a finite amount you can learn, in which case collaboration really is, is sort of the next step there. So, I, I don't know, I guess I guess the question is, if you, it depends on what you're trying to achieve as to how far you go. So, for you, would you ever, can if you want to improve the quality of your videos, mm-hmm. would you ever consider, rather than trying to upskill yourself or, or push yourself to learn more, would you ever just consider essentially working with or hiring someone else to fill that gap that's something i would i would not say no to and there are different things that i can't do and probably would not feasibly do and learn in the time that i have again you, you said before balancing time i've got a job already i've got other things to do i'm not going to learn how to create animations you know in the time that i have that's something i, I want to do is create animations create artwork and so on now i take pride in doing things myself but if I were to upscale my production, let's say, let's say hypothetically, I want to do this as a full-time gig, uh, drop my teaching hours, do more YouTube content, and I need to have things which I can't do myself, definitely. I would definitely get an editor. I would definitely get an animator. I would definitely get people to produce the videos uh, more professionally. But the fact that I've got my foot in so many things already means I don't feel bad about letting go of that. In fact, I feel that if I had to do it myself, I could do it, perhaps not to the same quality professionalism, but it's something which I still have some control over. One of the biggest things going from being a YouTube creator as a hobby to being a channel as a business, um, it's kind of like going to film school. Like in, in filming, you have to work with teams. Like one person can't do everything. You, know, you have your, your screenwriter, you have your, your, your videographer, you have your editor, you have your actors, your talent, and so on. On YouTube, it's actually mostly you. It's a one-man job. And that's something which people really struggle to let go of. But... Again, when you see people with successful channels who do openly and freely let go of their creative process and hire other people to do specialized jobs, you go, well, that makes a lot of sense. And for me, if it gets to a point where I'm ambitious enough and will dedicate that, I guess you say take that risk, I would do so, definitely. All right. Well, normally I would, uh, my last question would be, what advice would you offer to people who want to be in your position? But honestly, I think this whole podcast has been full of quite, uh, quite educational nuggets. So I think I'm going to skip that question uh, and move on to uh, where can people find your content? Uh, so I, I have several platforms, but the main one people know me by is my YouTube channel. Uh, my YouTube channel is called New Sensei. Uh, that is N-U-S-E-N-S-E-I. Uh, that's New Sensei. Uh, that's the same handle used for basically all my social media. So you can reach me on Facebook on New Sensei. On Instagram is New Sensei. And Twitter it's not new sensei. Uh, it's actually new underscore sensei. Some took my name already. Uh, <laughs> but otherwise, uh, it's the same hand across all the boards there. So uh, definitely, if you want to find out more about me and my content, uh, check out those platforms. Brilliant. All right. Thanks for the chat, David. That was very uh, inspiring. Uh, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Um, thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, so thanks, listeners, for sticking around. Uh, I hope you enjoyed what you heard. Um, as always, the content can be found wherever you find good podcasts. Uh, st- uh, stick around for the next episode whenever that comes out. Uh, and remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet. <laughs>